We have four stories today, and I think we'll get straight into it. I have two good friends, and all three of us are avid fishermen. We've been discussing a trip to a property I inherited in Grayling, Michigan, for a few months. And finally, a few days ago, we took that trip. The plan was to head straight to Grayling, but I had heard of a ghost town called Pear Chaney near Grayling. So I pitched the idea to my friends and they accepted. A little south of the town is the cemetery and we decided to stop there first. According to the myth, people have reported hearing children laughing then finding small handprints on their cars. Some say Pear Chaney was a cursed town. I would guess that it originally held around a hundred graves, but few headstones remained. We soon noticed two very strange things. First, every single tree in the cemetery was dead, while everything surrounding was very much alive. And second, while walking around the cemetery, the sounds from the woods fell silent, very noticeably silent. None of us said anything, but we were all feeling very uncomfortable in that graveyard. And when one of my friends suggested, We should go. Neither of us disagreed. We started heading back to the car. We looked up and perched on every branch of those dead trees was a crow. There were dozens of them. I can't believe how we didn't notice them when we arrived. Just as we reached the car, we heard something else. It came from the woods. Should we go help? No, we shouldn't. I don't know if it has anything to do with our visit to the cemetery, but something is happening in my house. Things will fall off shelves when I'm alone in the house. And 
I hear whispering. Nothing substantial, just a fleeting word or two. Go to sleep. But enough to get my attention. According to the legend, a witch cursed the village of Pear Cheney after she was banished to the woods. And soon after, there was a mass outbreak of disease in the town. The people who survived packed up and moved to what is now known as Grayling. Story number two is fictional, simply titled Ghost. I came home early one day, hoping to surprise my wife. I surprised her all right. <gasps> the last thing I remember her saying was, Steve, don't do it. Right before Steve threw me down the stairs. <laughs> My neck snapped and I was dead before I hit the bottom step. She cried at the appropriate times. Real tears too. Got the life insurance payout. He just slipped. Then she and Steve flitted off to Florida. I had planned on haunting them, but I found I couldn't. You see, when you die a violent death, you must remain at that location. It's my own fault, really. I was angry and I wanted revenge, so I chose to be a ghost. I could have just walked into the light. Anyway, here I am, and here is where I've been since 1946. So, I've had a minute to get over it. It hasn't been so bad, I guess. I've learned to enjoy my own company. And it's not as if I've been completely alone. There's been some nice families living here, and I've immersed myself, as best I could, into their lives. I think it looks good over here. No, Jim, it really doesn't. There's been some not-so-nice people living here, too. Those I've haunted. What was that? That was me. <laughs> the only ones who can see me are the kids. Something to do with being innocent or something. There was a lovely little girl in 1972, no, 73. Her name was Marianne and I appeared to her as a talking cat. Let's have a tea party. Another tea party? Okay. 
and we remained friends until she went off to college. But not all the children have been so nice. There was one particularly nasty little so-and-so named Glenn. I had some fun with him. Again with the monsters, Glenn? This has to stop. Anyway, I can't sit here talking to myself all day. You know how it is. People not to meet. Places not to go. Imagine living in a haunted house. And even worse, you were the only one in the family who was being haunted. When I was 12, we moved into an old house in Pennsylvania. It was quite exciting, but our first night there was not what I expected. I went to bed, and the second I closed my eyes, I heard, Help me! From, it seemed, just six inches from my face. I tried my best to ignore it, and somehow I drifted off. About a month went by, and one afternoon, I was lying on my bed. I saw something move from the corner of my eye. So I looked up at the doorway. It was a man, and he was covered in blood. He just walked by the open door. I got the impression he hadn't seen me. It was about two weeks later, and again I was in my bed, trying to fall asleep. I heard another voice. It was a language I didn't recognize. It sounded angry. And I heard it every night after that, for a week or more, before it stopped. The next occurrence was even more terrifying. I had woken late at night and could see what looked like a tarantula crawling over me. Then 
I heard. <laughs> I suffer from arachnophobia, and this spider was huge. I felt it knew about my phobia, and it was enjoying my fear. Some time passed with nothing further happening. Then, in summer, something new began. I'd hear the back door open. Then, a woman would call my name. The door would shut. Then, footsteps would come to my bedroom. The woman's voice sounded like my mum, but she was working the night shift, and there were no other females in the house. This went on for a few days. This time, though, there was more. Hannah? Dad? Is that you? Dad? It wasn't my dad. <laughs> no one else could hear these things. So I stopped talking about it. For fear they'd take me to a therapist. I just put up with intermittent terror for around four years. Until finally we moved out. Hey, it's me again. I had a minute in my busy schedule of, well, you know. I said earlier, it was only the children who could see me. That's not altogether true. The pets could see me too. The cats were generally cool about it. I mean, they're basically supernatural themselves. It was the dogs I had problems with. Yes, Roger, I know. You can see me. Yes, you are a good boy. Now, please, I'm begging you. Shut up. Just for a minute. Yes, that was a car going past the house. I really don't think they pose any threat, Roger. It's just a car. There was a time in 1967 when I almost got found out. The occupants at the time, a nice young couple, had a friend named Moonbeam. She 
was a problem. I'm telling you guys, there's a presence in this house. You need to do a cleansing. You most certainly do not. I can do it for you. Don't listen to her. But when she went to the bathroom... I mean, PBS NewsHour is about to start. Don't judge. I have to watch what they watch. Michael and Danielle have split? Oh, what a world we don't live in. That's where I sit. Scooch. Roger. Roger! We'll play later. Just, just let me, just let me watch this. Good boy. This story comes from a 1903 newspaper story. And I'll see you next week. This took place... 120 years ago, in the small town of Van Meter, Iowa. On the night of September 29, a salesman named U.G. Griffith was on his way home at around 1am. The small town was quiet. Nothing was stirring. He noticed a light shining from the roof of a building. It was so bright, he went closer to investigate. And as he did, the light jumped across the street and landed on the roof of another building. Then, as he watched, the light vanished. The next night, sometime after midnight, the town doctor, Dr. Alcott, was jolted from his sleep. In the back room of his downtown practice, by a very bright light shining in his face. What the dickens is this? He grabbed his gun and went to the window. On the other side of the glass was a creature. It had a human-like body and wings like a bat. It resembled a pterodactyl with a single horn on the top of its head. The piercing light was emanating from the horn. Terrified, the doctor raised his gun and fired. 
and the creature vanished. Word soon spread of this flying monster and the townsfolk armed themselves. The following night, bank teller Peter Dunn spent the night in the bank, armed and ready for what he believed were burglars perpetrating an elaborate hoax. At around 1am, he heard a strange noise outside the window. He approached the window. Who's there? And was blinded by a glaring light. He staggered back, shielding his eyes as the light swept through the bank. Then he fired his gun. And again, the creature vanished. Less than 24 hours later, a hardware merchant, O.V. White, was awakened by that same rasping sound. And when he went to the window, he saw something perched on a telephone pole. He raised his gun and fired. Awakened by the gunshot, a local merchant, Sidney Gregg, opened his front door and saw the monster still on the telephone pole. It was at least eight foot tall, with the beak of a bird and wings like a bat. Oh, sweet Jesus. As Greg stood watching, the creature lowered itself from the telephone pole in the manner of a parrot using its beak. It stood there as if listening. Just then, the mail train came through. Startled, the beast crouched as if about to take flight, but instead, flapped its wings and hopped away like a kangaroo. Greg fell back, stunned. By then, the whole town was abuzz. Two days later, fearsome noises were heard coming from a mine shaft. They were described by mine director J.L. Platt as sounding like Satan and a regiment of imps were coming forth for battle. Backing away in fear, he was struck dumb by the sight of the bird-like creature emerging from the shaft. Then, a second 
smaller creature followed and they both flew away. Platt gathered a group of armed men to stand watch at the mine and just before dawn there they are they reappeared look out the men opened fire but the bullets had no effect on the creatures they let loose their terrible cries and flew into the coal mine. The men quickly set to work, barricading the mine shaft. And the monsters were never seen or heard from again. Or so the story goes. Was it a total fabrication? If so, to what end? Was it perhaps a case of mass hysteria? Or was the Van Meter visitor, as it came to be known, a real-life monster?